If you would, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus 9 will be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus together. We now find ourselves coming upon the, the fifth plague that God has brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the gods of Egypt. Uh, if you've been with us, you know that so far we've seen God turn the Nile to blood with the first plague. Then He brought a swarm of frogs across the land in the second plague. Then we saw how God caused the dust of the earth to become gnats who then invaded the land, followed by the fourth plague, a swarm of flies. And those plagues left great devastation to the crops and to the fields of the Egyptians. And today, we will see in the fifth plague how God will bring destruction among the livestock of the Egyptians. All the while, He will protect His people from these plagues. And He is preparing to deliver His people from their slavery to the land of promise. And so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 9, verses 1-7. through 7. If you're able to, out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what the inspired Word of God says to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds and the flocks, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, Not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. If you would, pray with me, church. Father, we come again to a familiar place in Exodus where we have seen in recent weeks that this pattern of Your judgment coming on the Egyptians and and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And so as we study this passage Lord, I pray that You would soften even the hardest hearts among us this morning. Lord, that You might draw us to faith and repentance and a deeper understanding of the Gospel. And Lord, today as we look to Your Word, that You might help us to understand what it means to rightly worship You. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I've shared with you before about the events of 1894. We know of today as the Pullman Strike. It occurred when employees at our nation's railroads were responding to harsh conditions, a reduction in wages, and so in striking against the owners of the railroad, they, they shut down commerce all throughout our country. Nothing could move west of Chicago. Everything came to a halt. All told, the Pullman strike involved a quarter of a million workers in 27 states. And because of the effects of it, the president had to get involved. At that time, that was President Grover Cleveland. He called in 
12,000 U.S. Army troops and U.S. Marshals to end the strike. And with that, conflict came. All told, 13 strikers were killed, 57 wounded, and in today's dollars, about $8 million worth of damage was done. Once the strike ended, the President wanted to bring peace to our nation and to these workers in this conflict, so he rushed legislation through Congress to recognize a national holiday to celebrate the strength and spirit of trade and labor organizations. Six days after the Pullman strike ended, Labor Day became a national holiday. For most of us, we will gather a week from tomorrow and we won't think much about labor conditions and railroad unions and strikes. We'll think about cookouts and having a day off. But that day is rooted in an event that took place in our nation's history where many people were pushing back against harsh conditions to have their voices heard and ultimately those voices were recognized. As we look back quite a bit further than that event in our history, and we go back to the history of ancient Egypt, we find a time when millions of people were held in harsh conditions. When the Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians, and they did not have an opportunity to go on strike. They did not have an opportunity to cry out about the harshness of their conditions and expect any kind of change. In fact, if you were with us some weeks ago, we looked at how in response to their harsh conditions, the Egyptians or the Hebrews got their leaders together, their foremen together, and they, they went and they complained to Pharaoh. And you remember how that played out. Pharaoh made their conditions harsher. He increased their burdens. They didn't have a voice. They didn't have any ability to strike. And yet we have seen already how it is the God of the Hebrews who will strike. And He will strike harshly against Pharaoh. We have seen him strike Pharaoh now four times through these various plagues. Today we will see him strike a fifth time and yet we will see yet again how in the midst of God's judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the gods of Egypt, Pharaoh's heart only grows harder towards the things of God. But God will continue to bring judgment and will continue to break Pharaoh until he gets to a point where God then will deliver his people from their land of slavery, and take them to the land of promise. We've talked already about how there's a a familiar pattern to these plagues. There's not necessarily a lot new for us to discover each time we come to a plague because it's a familiar theme. God is establishing that He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the one true God. Pharaoh, who demands to be worshipped as God, is not a true God. The false gods of Egypt are not true gods. And therefore, we are seeing the power of God as God brings judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. But I do believe there are some some things for us to glean from each of these plagues. And so today, I want to talk in particular about the issue of worship and how it relates to what we learn through this fifth plague. And we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. This point is this, we are saved to worship God. We are saved to worship God. Notice verse 1 there in your notes. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Now part of that request, part of that demand is probably pretty familiar to you. 
because it's been echoed throughout cinema in our nation. Many of you have seen the film Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. In fact, when I say let my people go, some of you can hear in the back of your minds Charlton Heston saying that. My voice is not as demanding or commanding as his. But if you think about that scene, if you think about the Ten Commandments, there you have Charlton Heston as Moses. He's standing before Pharaoh and he says very clearly to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go. But then if you remember, he doesn't say anything else. Hey, he doesn't actually finish what God's Word says. God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may serve me. And friends, that is a very important part of the sentence to leave off. Let my people go then has us focus more on the people. It has us focus more on the Hebrews and the slaves. It have us think, has us think more about how God delivered His people and how the people are being rescued and how the Exodus is about the people. But when you read the whole sentence, you realize that the Exodus isn't just about the people. In fact, primarily it isn't about the people. The Exodus is about God and His glory. The rest of the sentence says, let my people go that they may serve me. That word serve can also be translated worship. Some of your translations this morning say that. It says worship me. That takes us back to Exodus chapter 3 where God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush and He told Moses what His role would be as the deliverer. And if you remember that interaction, Moses was not enthusiastic at first and so God is assuring Moses that He is indeed the one that God has raised up to be the deliverer. And so He actually tells Moses what is going to happen. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, God tells us, well, here's exactly how it's going to play out. Well, that's exactly what he does for Moses. Exodus 3, verse 12, he says, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That can be translated, you shall worship God on this mountain. And so God says to Moses, when you are leading the people out, when 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 all has worked out to where the people now, they are following, you're leading them to the promised land. Moses, you're going to come right back here to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And you're going to gather the people together and they're going to worship Me here. The the reason that God rescued His people, the reason that God saved His people is so that He might be worshipped by His people. But, but we tend to read God's Word with such a man-centered perspective, we just think about ourselves. We don't think about God. And if we do that, then we miss not only what God is establishing in His Word for us to understand about what He desires, we then misunderstand worship entirely. Because so often in worship, we think more about ourselves than we think about God. Worship is about bringing glory to God. But think of how you and I talk about worship. How was church this morning? I I didn't get much out of that worship. Now one, people usually don't say that directly to me. I mean, I get that sometimes, but... And I'm trying to think of the most gracious way to say this, but I just want to, empowered by the Holy Spirit say so what 
We didn't gather here to worship you. I don't care what you get out of it. And I don't care what I get out of it. We are here for God to get something out of it. Amen? We're here to worship God. If you walk out of this place and you didn't get something out of it, that doesn't say something about God. That says something about you. That says something about the hardness of your heart and my heart. Now I understand we've got traditions and we've got things we like. There, there are some songs I like better than others. There are some songs I, I sing more naturally than others. But when we start getting focused on ourselves, we are missing entirely what worship is to be. And notice here, principally, God is delivering His people so that they might do what? So that they might worship Him. I put this quote there in your, your outline. A.W. Tozer said it this way, we are saved to worship. All that Christ has done in the past and all that He is doing now leads to this one end. That is the purpose of your life. That is the purpose of my life. Think of it this way. Why is it that at the moment of your salvation that God did not just snatch you and take you straight to heaven? Why? I think most of us would agree that there's a lot of suffering and a lot of turmoil and a lot of heartache and headache that we could bypass if God would just rescue us at the moment we were saved and take us straight to heaven. I mean, to be taken from this world and from the fallenness of it and the effects of sin and take us straight to glory, <laughs> that, that would be a precious thing. And so oftentimes when we think of this and think, well, why, why didn't God do that? We think of it in the terms of evangelism. Well, because we have a job to do, a task to do. We need to tell others about the Gospel. And that is certainly true, but that's not the only reason. God didn't take you or I straight to heaven at the moment of our salvation because God desires our worship both here and there. God desires that we, we praise His name both here and there. And something unique about here is that God desires us to worship Him and praise Him in the midst of our suffering and pain and calamity. And that is something, friends, that you can only do this side of eternity. That's something you can't do in heaven. You can't praise God in suffering in heaven because God says in heaven there is no more suffering. There's no more pain. There's no more tears. There's no more death. No more cancers. No more children's hospitals. They're all gone in a new heaven and a new earth. And I look forward to that day. But do you realize the unique opportunity God has given us and the unique calling He's given us this side of eternity? To worship Him and to praise Him even when we suffer. It's important that we define what we're talking about here with worship. Because we do get it confused a lot. We do think of ourselves more than God often when that word comes up. Worship is, is praise. It's adoration. It's, it's reverence of God, both in public and in private. John Piper says it this way, true worship is valuing or treasuring God above all things. Hear that. True worship is, is valuing or treasuring God above all things. And if we're honest, so often there are other things we treasure more. That there are other things we value more. 
There are other things that worry us and concern us. There are other things that our attention is drawn to. Even now. Some of you are distracted because you are thinking of those things that you treasure more than God. And worshiping God rightly starts with rightly understanding God desires that we treasure Him more than we treasure anything else in this world. And if that's not where our heart is, then we start worship by coming before God and saying, God, I want to treasure You more than anything else. I need to treasure You more than anything else. And confessing that we don't treasure Him at times more than anything else. That's where worship begins. With a treasuring of God. With, with a valuing of God. And yet so often we find as we gather and as we just go through our day-to-day lives, we, we struggle with this. We, we struggle with, with authentically worshiping God. Many of us struggle even with this notion of what, what does that practically look like to treasure God above everything else. And we struggle with it for so many reasons. But I think one of the, the principal reasons we struggle with it is because there's a very real enemy who doesn't want you and doesn't want me to worship God. And we see that enemy very clearly in this text. And that leads us to this next point there in your outline, point two. And this is where I want to camp out at. Satan wants to keep us from worshiping God. Satan wants to keep us from worshiping God. God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. It's part of it. (laughs) That they may serve me, that they may worship me. But verse 2, but if you refuse to let them go and still hold them. We think of Pharaoh as enslaving God's people so he can have these slaves, this, this workforce, and that's part of it. But recognize what's happening here. Pharaoh in enslaving God's people is keeping them from worshiping God. He won't allow them to go worship God. Remember, the initial request is this. Let my people go three days journey away and worship and then they'll come back. That's what initially God asked of Pharaoh. And he won't allow that. Because he doesn't want them to worship the one true God because as we have seen before Pharaoh is an agent of the enemy himself and the enemy does not want God's people to worship him. He didn't want the ancient Hebrews to worship God and he doesn't want us to worship God today. In fact, what the enemy desires according to the Scripture is he desires that we worship him instead. And so you think about the temptations that our Lord Jesus faced. Do you remember that third temptation? Satan takes him to a place where he can look out and he can see just the glory of all the kingdoms on the earth. And do you remember what the enemy says to him? Matthew chapter 4. Satan says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Fall down and worship me. Here's Satan standing before the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ who was and is and is to come, who was there in creation and will be there in consummation. And He says to him, Jesus, if you will worship Me, you can bypass all this suffering. You can bypass the cross. You can have what already is yours. (laughs) 
Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And so we see this, this foundation in the Scripture that Satan desires worship. And, and we need to really think about that. Because in our context today, if, if someone were to come to us and talk about worship and talk about Satan, we would probably think about some satanic cult, some satanic gathering. People have a, 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 a book of satanic verses and they, they gather in a, in a church of Satan. These are real things that exist, but, but they're not big at all. They're fairly small in scale. And so we can kind of be naive and look at that and think, well, look at all these Christian churches that gather in the name of Jesus. And then look at these few kind of just weird gatherings in the name of Satan. Well, we're winning, you know. Look at all the churches we have. Look at the little churches there. People who would acknowledge that they're a part of a church of Satan in our country is a relatively small number. But I want you to consider this. I don't think Satan's primary, or I don't think Satan's complete focus is that we worship Him. I think that Satan is just as pleased if we don't worship the one true God. And so it's not that Satan is only pleased if we worship Him. It's if he can distract us from worshiping the one true God. Because either way, he wins. Whether we bow down to him or we just don't bow down to God, he wins there. And so he wants to distract us. He wants to keep us from worshiping. That's what's happening here in Exodus 9. The Hebrew people, I don't think, are tempted to bow down to Pharaoh here. That There's no indication in the Scripture that the Hebrew slaves were really struggling because they just kept bowing down to Pharaoh. No, the Egyptians were bowing down to Pharaoh. They were worshiping the false god. But the victory here for Pharaoh, as short-lived as it is, is the same victory shared by the enemy, as short-lived as it is, to keep God's people from worshiping Him. And so I want us to consider that practically in our own lives this morning. How's the enemy doing at that in your life? How distracted are you from worshiping God? How, how rightly do you worship God? How much do you even consider whether or not you are rightly worshiping God? How much do you even care about it? See, there's all kinds of ways that the enemy can distract us. And he's been doing this for a long time. In fact, one of the best works that I've come across on this is hundreds of years old. It's by Puritan Thomas Brooks. He wrote about the precious remedies against Satan's devices in 1652. He wrote these things in 1652, but I want to read just a few of them to you and see if you can recognize how these might apply in 2016. He said this, Satan makes the world look beautiful and attractive and desirable. And so what the enemy will do is he'll make that the world look so attractive to us that we're so lured by it that it pulls us away from worshiping God entirely. So Satan's not going to strike against us. Satan might make sure we benefit and things in the world go good for us because then we begin to trust in things other than God. And so Brooks said it this way, where 1,000 are destroyed by the world's frowns, 
10,000 are destroyed by the world's smiles. It goes on to say that Satan might make you aware of the fact that those who worship the Lord often have faced danger and loss and suffering. And so one of the ways that the enemy will seek to distract us is by convincing us that if we truly worship God, that God's just going to take everything away from us that we ever enjoyed. He's going to call us to do the thing that we most fear. He's going to send us some place we'd never want to go. Satan wants us to dwell on the high cost of obedience. And many, when they consider the cost, will not obey. In John 12, we read this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him. So many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out in the synagogue. We still live in a place in the world where nobody's going to kick you out of the church if you say you love Jesus. <laughs> it's what we want, right? Now, nobody's going to attack you and come at you with a machete if you stand up in Bloomfield and say, I believe Jesus is Lord. You don't have to come to church on Sunday morning where we live and fear if you're ever going to see your kids again because you're going to openly worship. But that's exactly the case in many places in the world. And what the enemy wants us to do is the enemy wants us to think about suffering a lot because the enemy wants to convince us in the midst of suffering that God doesn't care about us. He wants us to believe in the prosperity Gospel. That the enemy wants us to connect that God will bless us if we have enough faith, and if we're not being blessed, we don't have enough faith, so that when we suffer, we begin to think God doesn't care about us anymore. And yet the Scripture points us in a complete opposite direction and shows us how God uses suffering for His glory. If you really want to find out what a person believes, watch them when they suffer. And you'll find out really quick where their foundation is. I've said it before. It's, you know, it's one thing to do the dance in the end zone when we score the touchdown and say, you know, whoa, praise God. Get on the platform, win the award. Yeah, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus. It's another thing to do it in the cancer ward. It's another thing to do it at the funeral home. It's another thing to do it when you don't walk out of the hospital with the child that you walked into the hospital with. God desires that we rightly and truly worship Him not for what He gives us, but for who He is. And if our worship is focused on us and our emotions and our feelings, then we will not rightly worship Him. And there's a very real enemy who doesn't want us to worship Him. Brooks goes on to point out that He will fill our minds with unimportant and distracting thoughts while we are attempting to worship. Many of you are distracted right now. 
Many of us will sit through every worship service of our life distracted. And the things that will distract us so often are those things which bear no real significance in our life. It's 11.51. I wonder how busy Cracker Barrel is going to be. I wonder where I'm going to eat lunch today. I wonder if I'm going to get my nap this afternoon. I wonder what the weather's going to be like. Oh my goodness, I didn't get all that stuff done yesterday. I better get it done today. And I wonder what's going to happen next week. And we wonder and we wonder and we wonder and we wonder. And we're anxious. And the whole time, we are not here. <laughs> and we're so distracted. And if it's not those things, it's, it's something else. Satan wants us to be distracted. And he will do everything he can to crowd out the thought of worship by the weight of lesser concerns. Brooks says that Satan encourages us to take comfort in past performances of our religious duties and in that way convinces us to stop trying. Sometimes the greatest danger to worship is our pride in feeling like we've arrived already. You, you want affirmation in your walk with God. Maybe you feel right now as we're talking about worship and these more serious things, maybe you feel like, man, I'm not measuring up. And you, you want to feel like you measure up. You want to feel affirmed in your faith. Just listen to the enemy. He'll tell you you're the best Christian in the world. He'll tell you you're so good, you don't even need to try anymore. Yeah. You don't need to pick up the Bible. You know it well enough. I can't tell you the number of times someone has said to me, while explaining to me why their cousin or whoever it might be will never come to church and their life is godless and it's just a wreck. But, but there's always this phrase, but you know they know their Bible. No, they don't. They don't know squat. I mean, you can read it and not know it. You can read it cover to cover and still be completely foolish and ignorant of what it says. Because if you think that somehow reading this cover to cover a million times exempts you from obedience to the Word of God, you are foolish. And you're deceived by the enemy. Satan wants us to feel prideful. He wants us to feel like we've accomplished things in our religion. He wants us to feel like we already know this. Why are we going through another sermon on another plague? You know, we've, we've covered this already. Yes, God's sovereign and Pharaoh's bad and God's judging. Okay, let's just move on. We, we know this, preacher. We've heard enough about suffering. You've talked about suffering. And we start to think, well, I already know this. I've got this figured out. But that's right where the enemy wants us to be. And here we see in Exodus chapter 9 a picture of the enemy at work through Pharaoh trying to keep God's people from truly worshiping Him. And notice what God is going to do. Verse 3. Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague. Now remember the last plague? Remember when the, the magicians down the line there, remember when they looked and said, well, this is the finger of God. God said, you're about to see the hand of God. The hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague on your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. 
God goes on to say He'll make a distinction. He'll protect the Hebrews' livestock. But all the livestock in the field of the Egyptians is going to be wiped out. Not, not every living creature, because more are going to be wiped out in further plagues. But for now, all the livestock that are in the field are going to be wiped out. If you've been with us as we've looked at these plagues, I've shared about how each of these plagues represents a false god of Egypt. This was no different. Because these livestock, in addition to being the, the food source, transportation for the Egyptians, these also were objects of their worship. In fact, throughout Egypt, the, the bull was considered to be a symbol of fertility. And you had cults dedicated to bulls. Specifically, there was a breed of black bull that the Egyptians worshipped and deified and believed that it represented a false god, the Egyptian god Ptah, a god of fertility. And there was also Hathor, the goddess of love, who was represented by a cow and often depicted by a cow's head. There was Menaeus, who was a sacred bull worshipped in the southern delta region. In fact, that sacred bull would be represented by a bull, and whenever that bull would die, they would actually mummify the bull, and they would bury it in the ground because they believed it, or in a tomb, believed it to be a god. And then they would take another black bull and bring it along, and they would worship that one until it died, and then they would mummify it. What we have actually found recently mummified animals in Egypt. And I had to kind of laugh as I heard one report where they were talking about these mummified animals and they were saying, well, well, this just shows us how much the Egyptians love their animals. Kind of like us and pets today. Now, I've got two dogs. I will be sad when my dogs die. But if I go over to Hoagland Funeral Home and buy a casket for my dogs... You come talk to me and find out what's wrong with me. Now, God bless you if you've done it. Don't ask me to come preach a funeral for your dog. Did you hear that, Tina? Don't ask me to baptize your dog or your cat. I'm going to treat your dog and cat like a dog and a cat. Okay. But, but we live in this culture now where we've elevated creation and the animals and we do go to that extent and so that's why when we dig up a pyramid a, a tomb we tend to think that they kept these animals mummified because somehow they these pets were so important to them that's not why they mummified their animals they mummified their animals because they believed they were gods and goddesses because they worshiped these animals and so they worship bulls and they worship cows. So think about it in the context of what's taking place here in these plagues. God has brought plague upon plague against their land, against their vegetation. Their crops are destroyed. They're going to cry out to their false gods. They're going to cry out to these gods of bulls and gods of cows. They're going to bow down and worship these animals. And as they do, God will now bring a plague where He's going to entirely wipe out this livestock in the field. Now, we live in a farming community. We live in an area where you drive down the road and you see cattle and livestock. Many of you own cattle and livestock. Imagine what it would be one morning to wake up and get in the car and ride down the road and everything is dead. Everything's wiped out. Everything is rotting out in a field. And you multiply that by the land of Egypt and you get a picture 
of the devastation that God has brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians and their false gods. But we tend to read this and we think, well, I'm not going to worship a cow, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to go out to the farm today and light candles to the cow. I'm not going to worship the bull. I, I know what these things are, Pastor. You don't have to convince me of this. But, but I want you to recognize something about worship before we leave this text today. It's not a matter of are you going to worship the cow or worship the bull. It's this, point three. If you don't worship Jesus, you're not worshiping God. If you don't worship the one true God through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, if you don't worship God through Jesus in the name of Jesus, then the God you are worshiping is just another variation of the false gods that they worshipped in Egypt when they bowed down to the frog and the bull and the cow. Again, Tozer said, we are saved to worship God. And all that Christ has done in the past and all that He has doing now leads us to this one end. And friends, before we leave this morning, I just want you to consider the danger that exists for us today to worship a false god. Because what you see the Egyptians doing in worshiping the god of their day, they, they are worshiping the god of their culture. And what is very luring or tempting for us is to worship the god of our culture today. The God of our culture today loves everyone. The God of our culture today doesn't ever judge anyone. The God of our culture today isn't limited in access to one particular religion. He can be accessed through any religion. He or she or it or whatever can. The God of our culture today helps those who helps help themselves. The God of our culture today may bring judgment and punishment on some, but only on the Hitlers of our world. The God of our culture today wants us to behave morally and act spiritually. The God of our culture today can be found anywhere. You don't have to go to a church to worship. You can worship wherever you are, by yourself, out in nature. You can find God in the trees, in the creation, in anything. The God of our culture today is looking out for everyone, especially those who are looking for signs and clues and help. But friends, the God of our culture today is not the God of the Bible. And what you find is that we describe God more in the terms of those things I just mentioned than we describe God in terms of what the Scripture says about Him. And my fear for us in the church today is that we are worshiping a false God. And that we have just adopted this God of our culture in place of the one true God. And I want to end by pointing out how easy this is to do. So let me take us briefly to Exodus 32. A passage we will go to and spend more time in, but for now I want you to see this glimpse. God brings judgment 
on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh. Ultimately, God delivers His people and takes them to the promised land. And on their journey to the promised land, God does exactly what He promised He would do. He told Moses, you're going to come back to this same mountain and you're going to worship Me on this mountain. And so they come back to that same mountain. Exodus 32. And what's taken place previous to this in Exodus is they get to Mount Sinai and now Moses goes up the mountain and he meets with God. And God gives Moses the law. And Moses is gone for a while. Forty days and forty nights. And this is troubling to the Hebrews because they were placing their faith in Moses as the deliverer rather than God as the deliverer. And so when Moses is gone, well, notice what happens. Exodus 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to us, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. You ever wondered why they made a cow? A golden cow? Because friends, they came out of a land where that's what they saw people worshiping. That was the God of the culture they were in in Egypt. These false gods represented by golden cows. And so, once the one true God and His representative, once they're, they're, they're confused and they're not sure what's going on, they quickly turn their attention to the God of their culture, to the golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron saw this and he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. And so he attributes this golden calf to the one true God. Rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Skip to the end of the chapter. Verse 35. So the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron made. Point. It's very important we get this right. It's very important we worship God as He has dictated that we worship Him. It's very important that we don't settle for what people tell us about God, but we actually get into His Word and we learn about Him and we do what He calls us to do and we worship Him in the way He's called us to worship Him. And that when we worship, we don't fill our thoughts and our minds with things about us, but we fill our thoughts and our minds with things about Him. And when we find ourselves getting distracted as we're singing, we just stop and we read the words and we think about them and we, we pray to God, God, I want to know who You are. Help me to praise who You are. It's very important that we worship God rightly because if we, won't, if we don't, then we might not be worshiping God at all. I want you to notice, friends, God brings judgment on the Egyptians, but He also brings it on His people when they don't get this right. It's very important that we rightly worship God. 
And so today, as we pray, as we offer this time of invitation, I want you just to take a moment to consider, to ask the Lord, Lord, am I, am I rightly worshiping You? Am I rightly praising You? There, there's a warning in the Scripture for us. The warning for us is to be careful on both ends of the spectrum. When things are going really well, be careful because so often we begin to think God is just a God who gives us what we want. It's kind of like a, a, a Santa Claus or a genie. Everything kind of works out for us. And, and then when those things are taken away, well, then we think, well, God, what happened? And on the other end of the spectrum, there's a danger that when God does take things away and when people die and when calamity hits and when suffering comes, that when we look to God and say, God, what what are you doing here? Why are you punishing me? You don't love me anymore. Why would you let this happen? And the Scripture calls us, whether we're in a time of plenty or a time of famine, to come to God's Word that we might rightly understand who He is and praise Him and worship Him in the midst of the famine, in the midst of the riches. And so wherever you are on that spectrum today, our prayer needs to be the same. God, help us to understand rightly who we you are. And help us to understand who we are. Our need for repentance. Our need for confession. So church, if you would stand together with me as we pray for this time of response. Father, I just, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that, that You would do a work in each of us today. Lord, that You would lead us to repentance of sin. That You would convict us, Lord, if we have approached our relationship to You casually, flippantly. Lord, if we've not taken seriously who You are. Father, You have saved us for a purpose and we see from Your Word a foundational part of that purpose is that we might worship You. And so I pray just in these few moments we have, Lord, as we sing that, that we would mean what we sing. And God, if we need to just bow our heads and get on our knees, Lord, that we would just cry out to You and repent and confess. Pray, God, that we would rightly respond to your word in the name of Christ, empowered by your spirit. Amen.